in our study of Colossians, started this book just exalting in Christ, right? He was, he was so excited about who Jesus is and, and saying that Jesus is so much bigger and so much greater and so much more powerful and more important than any other priority you and I might have, any other religious experience that we might pursue, any other thing that we might find fulfilling to our souls, Christ is better. And we turn the corner a little bit in chapter three from who Christ is and and what he's done to how we should respond to that. And last week, we talked about a couple ways that Paul says we shouldn't respond to that. He said we should, there's certain things that we should put off. Uh, And and he mentioned two categories of practices. One was sexual immorality, and that covers a broad area of of different activities. And then maybe a little less um, concerning for some of us, but no less and maybe even more dangerous is anger and how we should be a people that are marked both by a radical sexual ethic compared to our culture and also marked by a lack of anger and a culture of love. And so today, as, we can, as Paul continues to talk through this idea of what the Christian community looks like, he is going to zoom in on this idea of love. And so if, if we're reading this letter and we're saying, okay, so we, we want to be people who are putting on the new self, are, are wearing this Christ-like supernatural other, otherworldly love, what, what does putting on God's love actually look like? And I want to ask four questions of this text this morning. I want to ask the question, where, where does love come from? And then what does love look like? After that, where is love practiced And how is love learned? So the first question, where where does love come from? Look at uh, chapter 3, verse 12. Paul says, therefore, because of all the things we've talked about already, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved. So we'll stop there. Paul reminds us, first of all, of where our Christian ethics come from, right? That our Anything that we do as God's people comes out of this idea that we are already God's people. We we already have a status as belonging to God. We don't earn God's love. We're not striving to be made acceptable in God's eyes. We are already beloved. Jackson mentioned earlier that it's Pentecost Sunday, and, and we're, not, we're not a highly liturgical church, but the, there's a church calendar that's been, in, uh, been practiced by many traditions for thousands of years. And, and on this Sunday, the church calendar celebrates the day that the Holy Spirit fell on the church in Acts chapter 2. And this is an example of just God's preemptive love for his people, the, the power and the, the, the glory, the supernatural ability for those of us that have been in our community groups and talking about the spiritual gifts, all of these things, they're not things that we have to measure up to or go out and get or strive for. They're things that God pours out on his people. I want to refer to this quote again. I, I've, I've read it a few times. I just, I just love it. Uh, from Henry Nouwen, he says, from the moment we claim the truth of being the beloved, we are faced with the call to become who we are. 
And that's so critical this morning as we talk about, honestly, ways that I'm falling short, ways that you're falling short. We have to start from the place of recognizing that we are beloved by God. So Christian, this morning, you are accepted by Christ. You are secure in Christ. You are significant to Christ. And the key to becoming more like Christ is living out of this reality. If you try to live out the commands of this passage that we're going to look at out of a sense of fear or shame or guilt, you know, I better do it or God's going to get me, like you're just going to fail. It's just not going to work. So where does love come from? Love comes from recognizing that we are beloved. So what does love look like? We'll keep reading in verse 12. Put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, all this, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So he says, here's some specifics, and we'll get into the specifics, but they all kind of fall under this umbrella of love. And it's interesting that as we think about our status as people in Christ, right, over and over and over again in this letter, Paul has said that we are in Christ. These attributes are all words that are often used to describe Jesus, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. And so, we are reminded by Paul that as we grow as Christians, we start to look more like Jesus. So let's go through these one by one. Compassion. The word here in Greek is actually two words, and it uh, literally is translated bowels of mercy, which is a great band name for like a Christian metal band. Um, because it's, it's about, you know that, you know that feeling you get when like everything's really good or everything's really terrible and it's like in your gut? That's where that comes from. It's this recognition that like these deep emotions live in here. Scott McKnight says that compassion comprises three elements, a need expressed, a response of mercy and love to that need, and an action that alleviates the need. If you are going to walk in compassion, you have to first recognize that other people have needs. And then you need to respond with your gut to that need. And that response, that emotional response that, that wells up inside you, it leads to action. It leads to meeting that need. That's what compassion looks like. And, and we fall short of this in a few different ways. In the first sense, we, we get individualistic and we get proud. How many of us just, just don't notice the needs of others? Because I've got so much going on in my life, I don't have time for any of you, any of you right? Like that's the, the default in our culture, in, in most of our lives is like, there are so many things out in front of me Everybody else has got their own problems to deal with. But compassion says, no, I'm going to go out of my way to get to know people and understand their needs so that I can feel them. But the other side of that issue is also that, that oftentimes in our individualist 
culture. We're all, you know, we're, we're, we're North Idahoans. Nobody, we, nobody can keep us down, get off my lawn, stay out of my business. We don't want to talk about our needs. Some of us maybe today are really struggling with some profound things, maybe material things, maybe emotional things, maybe relational things. And, and we just, we don't want anybody to know. We want to keep it to ourselves. And what we're doing is we're actually robbing the rest of our brothers and sisters from being compassionate towards us because of a fear of being known. But we also, we also get it wrong when we hear of a need and we don't respond with compassion. I'm really bad at this. I, I am... I'm learning, I'm growing. I've told you this before, but I'm, I'm really disconnected from my emotions. I'm a, I'm a in my head kind of guy. And it's, it takes me a lot of practice to actually enter into somebody's emotional space and feel along with them. And I know some of you are like, are you serious? Because you're always doing that. My wife is always doing that. She's like, she enters a room and she can just feel everyone's feelings from a distance. Sometimes that's a gift and sometimes it's not but I'm not wired that way. And so in order to be compassionate, I have to not only recognize that needs are there, but I have to go out of my way in my heart to feel. And then thirdly, compassion involves a response, an action. When it is in my power to do something about a need, do I do, I do it or do I just feel it? James says in chapter two of his letter, if a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? And he says, like, and we're so, we're so guilty of this. We, we see needs and, and, and there's, there's opportunities and we're like, wow, I'll, I'll pray for you. And that's good. We should, we should pray for one another. But like, if you have the power to meet someone's need, what stops you from stepping into that place and offering your assistance? You and I will, will be mature in this area when we recognize that out of the wealth that we have been given, we are called to give it away to those who are hurting. And, and when I say wealth, I don't necessarily mean money, time, energy, skills, presence. Sometimes meeting the need is just sitting with someone who's hurting but we've been given so much in Christ and we're called to pour it out in compassion. The second word in Paul's list is kindness. Kindness is an attribute of God that he says in Romans that brings us into the family in Romans 2. Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Paul says in in Romans, that, that God is constantly just lavishing people with good things. Even the rain this morning is going to prevent wildfires later on in this season, even though we're all complaining about it. And everybody gets that. It's not just like my house or your house. It's, it's a gift that's given to everyone with the intention that we would all turn our hearts toward God. And Paul expects us to develop the same moral impulse that our father has. 
The word kindness is a very similar word to the word grace. It's undeserved favor or an unearned gift. And it's, it's weird today. If you, if you kind of follow popular Christian culture, kindness, kindness has a weird reputation. I, I see people making really uh, uh, convoluted excuses about why we're not called to be kind in this moment. Whatever situation you find yourself in, kindness isn't going to work. Maybe you you hear that we live in a culture that's hostile to Christians, which is true. And our enemies won't be kind to us, which also might be true. So why should we be kind to them? But see, God, God every single day is displaying his kindness to people by all the good gifts he gives to them in order to draw them to himself. And he doesn't give us permission to sabotage that work that he's doing by embodying anything else. No matter who we are and what situation we're in, we're always called to kindness. He goes on and and says humility. Here's McKnight again. The moral virtue of choosing to renounce rights and status in order to serve others. And the crazy thing about humility is this is not a virtue in Paul's culture. We we sometimes get lost in, in in the reality that like we exist in a world that is in some ways profoundly unchristian, but also built on 2,000 years of the Christian worldview. And so we just assume, whether you're a religious person or not, you just assume that humility is a good thing. But in ancient Greece, in ancient Rome, that wasn't the case. Historian Edwin Judge writes, humility in Greek and Roman ethics would be a degrading thing. To put yourself down to a level that you were not born to or that your standing in life did not require you to be in was disgraceful and debasing. There was no virtue in it at all. The Romans had a different virtue. They called it philotimia, which, is, which translates the love of honor. And the way uh, the love of honor worked is if you've achieved something in life, you deserve to make sure everyone knows it. There's a, a really interesting letter uh, called The Achievements of the Divine Augustus that Caesar Augustus wrote after he'd ascended to the throne. If, you, if you're familiar with Roman history, Julius Caesar, Caesar was killed and his, um, I think it was his nephew um, or adopted nephew, Augustus ascended to the throne to be the Caesar. And he wrote this letter It's about 2,500 words. You can find it online. And he sent it out to every single city in the Roman Empire. And he wrote, here's just a couple of snippets. In my 19th year, on my own initiative and at my own expense, I raised an army with which I set free the state, which was oppressed by the dominion of a faction. Twice I triumphed with innovation, and three times I enjoyed a curial triumph, and 21 times I was named emperor. Four times I helped the senatorial treasury with my money so that I offered $150 million to those who were in charge of the treasury. And, and this, this idea of like just sending out a mass communication of all the amazing things that I've done, maybe that feels a little weird to you. And if, I mean, if, if a politician today did that, it'd be kind of like, kind of cringe. But in that world, that was what you did. That's how you showed how great you were. And look how Paul interacts with this kind of literature. 
going to read a couple fairly long passages. This one's from Philippians. If anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law of Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. But everything that was gained to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. See, he starts with the same motif, the same genre of literature that would have been so normal. Here's all the things that I've done. Here's all the things that I am. And then he says, but all that, all that's garbage compared to Christ. He does something similar in 2 Corinthians, but in whatever anyone dares to boast, and I am talking foolishly, I also dare. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm talking like a madman. I'm a better one with far more labors, many more imprisonments, far worse beatings, many times near death. Five times I received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I've spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, and dangers among false brothers, toils and hardship, many sleepless nights, hungers and thirst, often without food, cold and without clothing. Not to mention other things, there is the daily pressure on me, my concern for all the churches who is weak, and I am not weak, who is made to stumble, and I do not burn with indignation. If boasting is necessary, I will boast about my weaknesses. And this is crazy because the Corinthians, they would have expected an apostle, a great man of the church, to value the love of honor and talk about all of his accomplishments. Look at all of the people that have gotten saved. Look at all the churches I've founded. Look at all the books of the Bible that you don't know they're books of the Bible yet, but I will have written them. And, and on and on and on, all of the accomplishments that this great man did for the sake of the church. But he doesn't do that. He lists a bunch of accomplishments and they're all terrible, right? That list is awful. Look at how badly I've been treated. Look at how awful my life has been. Look at how weak and how discouraged and how defeated it seems that I've been. See, Paul turns this idea of the love of honor on its head and says, Christian, we should be walking in humility. And he's not just doing it as like a polite deflection. You know, many of us see humility as, as like, hey, you know, you're really great at that. Oh, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. That's not what he's doing. Paul's humility is actively lowering his status and he's giving up his rights for the sake of others because that's what Jesus did. Because Paul, more than anything, wants to be like Jesus. He writes, Elsewhere in Philippians, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. When he had, become, when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
See, humility, humility matters to us as Christians because we are on a journey to become like Christ. If I'm not interested in giving up my rights and lowering my status for the sake of others below me, I'm not really interested in following Jesus. And so, and for many of us, humility is something that we can't just open ourselves up to. We must pursue it. And and this is true probably with all of these virtues. But there's there's a sense in which when, at least in my heart, when I hear a call towards Christian virtue, I just think like, yeah, Next time I'm in a situation where that's the case, I will, I will do that. And, and that's, that's great. But as I look over my life, I have, I've held the title of owner. I've had the title of manager, the title of director. Currently, I have the title of elder. And if I'm walking around saying, you know, if, if humility comes to me, I will receive it chances are I likely will never be humble because I've been placed in a position either in work or in the church. I've been being lifted up above others. In a family, parents, you're above your children in very real ways. And for those of us who have power, our job is to find ways to be humble. Just like Paul does He goes out of his way to put himself in situations and act upon instincts to make himself humble. So whether you're a leader or a manager, maybe you're a deacon or a small group leader, you're a parent, you're a teacher, whatever it is, you'll find yourself, most of us will find ourselves in places where we are over other people. And we have to learn to intentionally give up our rights and lower ourselves to serve others. And it will cost us something. That's another thing we forget. We're just going to be humble. We're going to be low. We're going to follow Jesus. And then, oh, then it hurts. And we don't like it. But the thing is, it costs Jesus something. And it costs Paul something. And it's a necessary part of our growth as we become more like Christ. The next word in the list is gentleness. Again, here's a comment from McKnight that I really like. Those with pervasive and progressive social visions like Paul and his converts can become harmfully aggressive about the vision. I love this because we get really excited about things that we get really excited about, right? And we lose perspective. Don't they understand that insert your favorite social soapbox is the more important than anything else out there? Right? Whether it's, whether it's the, the, the pro-life cause or, or children at the southern border or inner city schools or religious freedom or climate change or a thousand other things, this is the most important thing and everybody needs to recognize that my thing needs to be all your things. We have to be gentle people. Because see, the, the gospel is the most important thing. And all the, all the other important things... It flows from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul, Paul has this mission to get the gospel to as many people as he possibly can. He's just, he's relentless. And it would be easy to get grumpy 
around people who aren't as relentless as you? Don't they understand? Don't they know how important this is? Why aren't they so passionate about this as I am? And Paul says, we need to be gentle. There are important things. But our posture towards people always needs to be gentleness. Because the question for all of us, whatever, whatever the thing is that we think is important, maybe it's the gospel, which is the most important, or maybe it's another social issue or, or some other uh, cultural thing that is also important. Is our goal to just win arguments with people or is our goal to actually change people's lives? Because in my experience, it's, it's much easier to just win an argument without gentleness, but it's really hard to actually move the needle and change people's lives without it. So Paul says, be gentle. And then he says, be patient. Patience, it flows from these other virtues. If we are going to be compassionate, kind, humble, gentle people, the fruit of our labor will likely be slow in forming fully. If our, if our tactics for mission and discipleship are the ones that look like Christ, it may be that the Holy Spirit will fall in, in supernatural power and do great works, and, and that happens. But the everyday, ordinary work of the gospel is growing fruit, and it's a slow process, and it takes time, and we need to be patient. When the church abandons patience, we often abandon the gospel. In the second century, Tertullian wrote, let wrongdoing grow weary from your patience. This is a season in church history where Christianity is illegal, and churches met behind closed doors and underground, and, and you could get in a lot of trouble and even be killed for being a Christian. And Tertullian's message was, we're going to outpatience them. A hundred or so years after that, though, the head of the Roman Empire, Constantine, became a Christian and legalized Christianity and then began a process of forced conversion. There were whole groups of people in the Roman Empire, uh, primarily Jewish people, who were not Christians, and, and Constantine sent the army in on behalf of the church to make them become Christians, convert or die. And all of the ethics of Christ were just instantly thrown out the window. When I'm impatient... When I think I've got a better way, I can do it faster. We'll just, we'll just make them become Christians instead of wooing them to Christ by the power of the Spirit. When I'm impatient, I almost always betray my convictions. He says we're called to bear with one another and forgive one another. Bearing with one another. That, that means we're supposed to put up with each other. There's a lot of things that we do as followers of Jesus, that aren't sinful, that aren't wrong, but they're, they are annoying. Like, I, I do things that are annoying. Um, my wife does things that are annoying. Anybody that shares a bathroom with anyone else, 
siblings, roommates, spouses. Like, there's a lot of annoying things that happen in the bathroom. But we're family, right? And so we're called to just put up with each other in the midst of the annoying. But then the reality is we also sin against one another. We harm one another. We wrong one another in word and deed. And, and we need to forgive one another. Sin in the body, it needs to be brought to light and it needs to be admitted to and it needs to be dealt with honestly. And why? Because Christ has forgiven us of so much more than anything that has been done to us by another. Paul says, just as the Lord has forgiven you, you are also to forgive. And there's a lot of really good work being done in the church to expose um, really grievous patterns of sin. And there's been, a, there's been a tendency in, in many churches for a long time to just, to just take really dark, really awful sin and just sweep it under the rug. And, and that's, that's really, um, it's really unfortunate and it's ultimately wicked. And so I want to say that like there are, there are places where, where forgiveness is a hard road, where you've been harmed so deeply by someone that actually figuring out how to forgive and, and what that looks like and if there's, a, if there's boundaries that need to be in place between two people because of the kind of sin that's been committed, like those are all really good questions. And it's important to have really good pastoral counsel to walk you through those kind of things. Sometimes when someone sins against you, it's a criminal thing and law enforcement needs to be brought into that. And I say that so that nobody misunderstands me, but then I also want to say like 99% of the reasons we get mad at one another are not that, right? We, we get upset with one another because of a, of, of a word spoken carelessly or, or an action that was mis- misinterpreted and we don't pursue that person and we don't ask for forgiveness or we don't let them know that we've been hurt by them and we just let it fester and pretty soon we have to find a new church because the relationship is broken down so much. And we need to be proactive in forgiveness. Because Paul says, this is, this is what love looks like. Above all, the, the umbrella over all of this, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So the next question, where is love practiced? Verse 15, let the peace of Christ to which you were also called in one body rule your hearts and be thankful. He says there is a peace that comes from Christ, a peace that comes from Jesus. And when we think of peace, we often think like the absence of war. Like right now, if Russia would stop dropping bombs on Ukraine, there would be peace. But that's not really what peace is. I mean, that would be great. But in Scripture, peace isn't just an absence of conflict. It is the presence of order and unity and beauty and life. The Bible calls it shalom. And it's a word that describes everything in the world being as it should be. 
Jesus is called the Prince of Peace in Isaiah 9. And the kingdom of God, where peace reigns, is being actualized in the church, the body of Christ. And Paul says that peace, the peace of Christ, Christ's shalom, the the vision of the way the world is supposed to work, should rule our hearts. In Paul's day, there was a saying um, called the Pax Romana. It's a Latin phrase that means the peace of Rome. And what it was, was this idea that the Roman army was so powerful and so great that they just swept across the world, put down rebellion, and created peace. Now, if you didn't like their peace, they'd kill you. But we didn't want to talk about that because the Roman Empire is just this amazing force of peace in the world. And everybody just knew, like, well, that's not exactly right, but don't say that too loud. But Paul says, no, it's not the peace of Rome that you should think about. It's the peace of Christ, the the kingdom that Christ is building, which is completely different than the one that Rome is building. That's the thing that should rule our hearts. To rule means to judge And it's often used in Greek literature for the work of an umpire at the Olympic Games, the guy that stands on the side and decides the outcome of the match. I was recently doing a video project for a uh, girls' softball league here in town, and I was um, right behind home plate at this this tournament, and I had my my, uh, camera focused on the plate, and the batter swung, and... Um, hit it off into the infield and the runner on third ran down to home and slid into home plate. And I was super excited. I got it all in slow motion. It's a great shot. But the umpire's there and it's their job to figure out what's going on and judge. Are they safe? Are they out? Which way should this go? And Paul says, the peace of Christ should umpire in your heart. When something comes across your heart, it's the peace of Christ that should make the call. So what does that mean? Sometimes we think that means like, um, we'll say things like, uh, you know, I'm thinking of quitting my job or moving to another state or whatever. And, you know, I I just have peace about it. And that's fine. You you should have peace about it, but that's not what this is talking about. Sam Storm says it this way, a decisive factor in how you should conduct yourselves in relation one to another is whether or not the peace that Christ died to achieve and impart is preserved and promoted. So when you have a decision to make, when you're looking for the peace of Christ, what should be governing that decision is not just a a peaceful feeling in your heart, but whether or not your decision and the the choice that you make is in alignment with the ultimate shalom of God. Is it bringing, promoting order and beauty and life and flourishing, or is it some other thing? A really ridiculous example of this uh, that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians is that he finds out that um, they're not getting along 
in the church, and they're, uh, they're disagreeing with one another, and they're not forgiving one another. And he finds out that they're actually taking each other to court because of their differences. And, and he kind of freaks out on them about it. And at the end of this section, he says, as it is, to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? And that's a verse that you read, and, and if you bring it into our context, it just seems crazy, doesn't it? Like, so, so somebody hurt me. They, they took money from me. They cheated me in business. They did something, and they call themselves a Christian. And so you think, Paul, that I should just let that go rather than take them to court? That I should take that loss upon myself instead of fight for it in the secular courts? And Paul says, yeah, because in his framework, which decision promotes the rule of Christ in our hearts? Taking our dispute out of the church and into a secular court to be adjudicated by someone who may or may not even be a Christian, according to a set of laws that may or may not even fall in line with the principles of the kingdom? Or to, in an act of humility, take on the loss and lower yourself for the benefit of peace. That's wild. That seems to be the kind of thing that Paul is saying. So this this love that we express plays out in the countercultural kingdom of Christ that's being built in our midst. So the last question this morning is, how, how is this love learned? Look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So he says, let the word of Christ. Now, it's easy for us to say, hear the word of Christ and just think of the Bible. And that's not inappropriate, but you have to remember that the Colossian church did not have the Bible as we would consider it. They had the Old Testament scriptures and, and maybe a couple other letters, maybe a gospel, a lot of oral tradition. The word of Christ in this context is most likely the message of the gospel. And this is important because we should be growing in our knowledge of the Bible. All of us here should aspire to be students of God's word. We should all um, work on creating rhythms and rituals of, of getting into the word and reading the word and studying the word and making use of tools to study the word. But even if you're here and you're someone who doesn't know the Bible very well yet, you still need to know the gospel. You still need to know the good news about Jesus. If somebody came up to you on the street just randomly and said, hey, you're a Christian, right? Yeah. What's the good news about Jesus? What would you say? Would you be prepared to answer that question? The answer to that question, Paul says, should be at home in us. It should dwell in us. And he says it should dwell richly. 
I was thinking about this today or this week, and do you, do you think that like Elon Musk, when his water heater goes out, do you think he stresses out about it? No, he, does, he probably has somebody, he probably just has a water heater guy that just takes care of it for him. Why doesn't he stress out about it? Because he's wealthy. He's got lots and lots and lots of money. And so almost anything that comes his way financially, I mean, he could have like a rocket blow up and he'd be like, ah, I've got another one of those, right? Like he's got so much resource to deal with financial problems that he's just not stressed about it. And Paul says, we should have so much resource in the gospel of Christ to deal with spiritual problems that we're not going to be stressed out about it. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Get so much of Jesus that when things come your way, you're like, eh, it's fine. I got, I got plenty of grace and kindness and humility and compassion and gentleness and love and patience to deal with that. But oftentimes, I think we, we have the opposite reaction. We, we get into a situation that's difficult, that's, that's challenging, where it's relational or, or it requires faith from us or something, and we, we can't find the resources. We feel like we've overdrafted that account. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How do we, how do we get more of that? Well, he says that we're to be teaching and admonishing one another. This is, this is one of the reasons we gather. We gather here, we gather in small groups, we go out to coffee with one another. There's just all of these interactions that we have. And one of the reasons we do that is because we're called to teach and admonish or exhort one another. I'm not, I'm not here by myself. I have all of you to help me. And, and this is important because we're not just supposed to input the word of Christ. We're supposed to output it as well, right? There, there's, a, there's a sense in, in, in the church often where we just, we become attenders, right? We, we, this is the church I attend, and I just come, and I sit, and I, I, I um, take part in religious goods and services, and then I leave, and if the religious goods and services change in a way that I don't like, then I'll find another one, and, and we just consume this kind of thing. But Paul's vision of the body of Christ is that we all have a role to play, and one of those roles is teaching and admonishing one another. And if we don't do that, if we don't output the good news of Jesus into the lives of others, we will become stagnant. I was on a retreat a couple weeks ago up in um, the woods north of Spokane, and I was staying in a cabin kind of up on the top of this hill, and there was a trail that kind of ran through the property. And, and one of the trails, it, it just went way down into this little valley. And at the bottom of this valley, there's this big, like 20 by 20 foot pond. And it stank. It was gross. It was all covered in slime. And I don't know if anything was alive. I'm sure a lot of things were alive in there. I didn't find out. But it was all mossy and, and just, it's, you could just smell it. Why? Because it was at the bottom of the hill, and all the water ran down the hill into the pond, but once it got to the pond, it couldn't get out, and it just festered. 
And if we're people that constantly input the word of Christ and are constantly refreshed by the goodness of the gospel, but we don't ever give it out, we will start to stink and fester. And this is a job for all of us. For some of us, it's a gift. Some of us are gifted supernaturally in these ways. For some of us, it's a a vocation. Part part of my life is that my family gets supported by the teaching that I do. But for all of us, it's a discipline. We're all called to pour out as we are poured into. And sometimes it's not easy. Admonishment, exhortation, sometimes the thing that needs to be said is difficult to hear. We don't like that. We, we would rather just avoid difficult conversations, maybe even, you know, lose friendships because I just don't want to have to talk to that person about that thing. But we are all called to pour out the word of Christ in each other's lives, both in teaching and admonishing. And then Paul mentions a way that this happens. He says, through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And I love this. We are commanded here and in the book of Ephesians to sing to one another as a method of teaching one another the truth about the gospel. This is something that I talk with Jackson about frequently of the, what are the songs we are singing? What are they teaching us about Jesus? And we have a whole, we have a whole rubric that we work through and, and, and the, the primary category is, is, is this song true? Is it, is it faithful to scripture? But, but then it also, is it, does it connect us to the historic body of Christ? Does it help us reach back into past and remember the generations of faithful people that have come before us? Is it, is it beautiful? Is it easy to sing? <laughs> Sometimes they're not easy to sing. According to Paul, music is a big deal in church. And some of us, we, we just don't like singing. I see, and, and, you know, we're not a large church, and, and sometimes people come in right after the music's over, and then they leave right before it starts again. And I just, I, you know, it's disobedience to a clear command of Scripture to not sing with God's people. I don't, know, I don't know how to say that any other way. It seems pretty clear to me that Christ says we should be singing. And we don't have time this morning to go into a long discussion of why, but this why is that it is a way that we teach one another the truths of the gospel. This morning so far, we, we sang that, that Christ will hold us fast, right? When, when things fail, when things seem to fall apart around us, Christ will hold us fast. We invited the Holy Spirit to be here in our presence to speak to us in powerful ways, to to remind us that that this isn't just a a dead meeting. This is is something that God is doing in our midst. We We told each other how great our God was and that he's worthy of our praise. I think my favorite line in that song is the one that says, we will make it known to our kids. Like we are, we are people who will teach our children in the way of Jesus. And there's like a hundred other things in just the three songs that we sang this morning 
that are meant to teach us the Word of Christ. And we're going to sing some more in a few minutes. And then Paul says this at the end, whatever you do in word or deed, in everything, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. He takes, he takes his instructions for the worship gathering and he moves it out into the Monday through Saturday. He opens it up into our whole lives. We don't just live out this Christ-like ethic in the church among one another. This is where it starts. But we take that out into the community, into our family lives, into our work lives, into our schools, in how we treat people and how we speak. And it's frustrating to see how many people don't take this seriously. And I'm sure, I'm sure you've, you've recognized this. They, they've got a fish on their car and they flipped you off. Or they've got, you know, lover of Jesus in their social media profile and they just say the most awful things online. Back in Exodus, God gives us what we call the Ten Commandments. And the third one is, don't take the name of the Lord in vain. And a lot of us maybe thought growing up that that meant don't swear don't use curse words. But the reality of that is that we're called not to be someone who proclaims allegiance to Christ and then acts in a way that betrays that allegiance. Paul says, whatever you do, whatever you say, whatever you do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Don't take the Lord's name in vain by letting your actions and your words betray that you're not really trusting in Christ. So do I do this well? Do you do this well? No, <laughs> not really. I stumble and I fall. I embarrass myself. I misrepresent Christ. But the truth of the gospel is that as we as a community build one another up, teach one another, gather together to sing and worship and go out into the world looking for opportunities to live out this kingdom ethic, we will grow more like Jesus. And I know that's true because this is a work that God is ultimately doing in us. He's just asking us to be faithful to it. We are God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved. And he will see it through in our lives. We're going to um, take communion like we always do. And I want to read you something from, from 1 Corinthians. And, and I have to confess, I probably don't do this enough. Uh, but this is, um, this is Paul in 1 Corinthians. He says, So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. 
Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So what's happening here is the Corinthian church is coming together for the communion meal, but the rich people on Sunday, Sunday's a work day in Corinth, and the rich people have the day off because they're rich. The poor people have to work, and so they have to go to work, and, and they come after work, but the rich people have already gotten there, and, and they've eaten most of the good food, and some of them have gotten drunk, and the kingdom ethics that we just walked through, compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience, are just not being displayed in the church at Corinth because those with power, those with wealth, are abusing those who are poor. And Paul rebukes them. He says, this, you, you can't take the communion meal. You can't participate in the body and blood of Christ if you're not treating one another like Christ would treat you. And he says, some of you are getting sick because of this. And some of you have died. <laughs> and like, that's a, that's a pretty serious warning, isn't it? To say that if you're going to live a life that, that just ch- where you just choose not to strive to look like Jesus. And again, we're not perfect people. We're not even great at it most of the time. But are we people that are moving towards, by the power of God's Spirit, Christ-likeness? And if we're not going to be those people and we're going to come and take the bread and the cup each week, communing with Christ in this way, Paul says, that's dangerous. Be careful. There's consequences to that. And, and I say that today not as, a, not as a warning not to take communion. Like, oh man, I'm, I'm not in a good place. I should probably not take it. Like, no. It's a call to take Jesus seriously. Like, if you're here this morning and you've, as we've walked through these character traits that, that sh- should shape us as God's people, and you're seeing, like, I'm not measuring up here. I'm not measuring up there. This thing is out of alignment. This thing is broken and wrong in me. That's the grace of God. And Jesus saying, come. Come all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Come in your brokenness, in your shame, in your guilt. But it is a call to examine ourselves. To ask God to show us where we are not walking worthy of the name of Jesus. And repent of that sin. And maybe there's something going on in this room between a couple people. Maybe there's somebody that you need to actually have to go to and seek forgiveness before you come to the table this morning. And I would encourage you to do that. But hear that warning both as a seriousness to what it means to follow Christ but also as an invitation to get your heart right with the Lord and participate 
in the grace of God through the communion meal. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.